In April 1983, Ronald Reagan travelled to Pittsburgh on a trip intended to highlight the administration's job retraining initiatives and to bolster support for the President in advance of the 1984 elections. However, soon after Air Force One landed in Pittsburgh, things started to go badly wrong. Ron Bricker, an unemployed steelworker who had spent nearly a year looking for employment, thrust a copy of his resume at Reagan and asked him for help in finding a job. Later in the trip, 4,000 protesters, mostly unemployed steelworkers, gathered in the pouring rain, chanting, Reagan, Reagan, he's no good, send him back to Hollywood. When Reagan and his entourage returned to Washington, they were distressed by the scenes in Pittsburgh. Attempting to salvage something positive from the trip, the White House set about helping Ron Bricker find work. The evening after the Pittsburgh trip, Reagan telephoned Bricker to tell him that a job interview had been arranged for him at the Radio Shack. Initially, everything went smoothly. Major newspapers published articles about Reagan's intervention, and Bricker announced that he was accepting a computer repair job live on ABC's Good Morning America. However, the former steelworker found that he was unable to keep up with his mortgage repayments on his new salary. After two months, he quit. But Bricker did not remain unemployed for long. The day after he finished work at Radio Shack, the steel company that had laid him off offered him his old job back. Jumping at the chance to return to a well-paid job, Bricker accepted. During the early 1980s, Ron Bricker's story was depressingly familiar. When Reagan visited Pittsburgh, an estimated one out of three steelworkers were unemployed. Because of the geography of US steel production, unemployment was concentrated in a handful of industrial cities. In April 1983, Pittsburgh's unemployment rate stood at 16%. Yet, while elements of Bricker's story were familiar, the ending was unusual. Indeed, the White House only carried out a career search for one unemployed steelworker, and only a very fraction of the unemployed steelworkers laid off during the 1970s and 1980s were ever rehired. On today's podcast, we discuss America's Rust Belt, the ill-defined space that shocked the world when it gave its votes to Donald Trump in 2016. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of American History 2. I'm Malcolm Craig and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Mark McClay. Hello, Mark. Hello, Malcolm. So nice to hear your voice doing that, although slightly upsetting given you have a more authoritative and, and all-around better voice than I have. But what 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 to, what to do? I'm quite I'm honoured to be but your partner in crime. I do have a face for radio, though. Well... Yeah, I'll put your face actually as the picture of this podcast and let the audience decide, especially with the real beard you've got going on just now. Um, cool, well, basically, so today we are going to be discussing um, the the Rust Belt in American society, and to do so we're going to be joined by the University of Oxford's Dan Rowe, um, and I, I get I get the impression that Dan might be in media demand over the next couple of, couple of months as uh, the Rust Belt, the famous working class Rust Belt voter who propelled Trump to the presidency in 2016, having weirdly backed Obama in 2008 and 2012, and we'll get into those issues, becomes into focus again with the midterm elections approaching. So no pressure, Dan. Uh, so <laughs> thanks for coming on, and can you tell us a minute or so about your research? Yeah, so um, thank, you, thank you for inviting me, Malcolm and Mark. Um, so my work looks at really what I call the, the long economic crisis of the 1970s and the 1980s. So the period of acute economic st- instability between about 1974 
1984, um, just to make it a 10-year period. And so I look at very much at the places and industries that were affected um, the worst during this this period, as I've said, acute economic kind of instability when the very fundamentals are questioned. So if, if it did poorly in the 1970s and 1980s, then I'm interested. Um, New York is on the verge of bankruptcy in 1975. Cleveland does go bankrupt in 1978. Um, Chrysler's bailed out by the federal government. Um, all of these kind of things. As I've said, the industries and places that suffered poorly. So whilst I don't explicitly focus on the area that will eventually become known as the Rust Belt, uh, the Rust Belt and it, and the industries of the Rust Belt are fairly central to what I write about. Um, so it's notionally nationwide, but as I've said, I've come to identify as a historian of the Rust Belt. So we better probably dive quite in because we're using this term, the Rust Belt, and some listeners might not you know, have much of an idea of exactly what we're talking about when we say the Rust Belt. And my first encounter with the term was actually as a teenager reading uh, cyberpunk science fiction novels uh, like William Gibson and all that kind of thing, who set some of the stories in this area called the Rust Belt uh, in, in America. And at the time, I wasn't entirely clear what that meant. So what is the Rust Belt? Is there, a, is there a static definition of it, or has the term kind of implied different places and different ideas since it first came into use? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because there is no static definition. It's not a term invented by geographers. It's a term that very much just kind of emerges fairly organically through just the media, the media using it. So it emerges somewhere in the late 1970s, early 80s. There's a few goes at different versions of the term. Rust Bowl is most popular in the night between about 1979 and 1982. And at about 1982, people settle on the label Rust Belt. But when people use the term Rust Bowl or Rust Belt, they're really talking about the old industrial areas of the northeast and midwest us um although people do increasingly talk about the global rust belt but they're really talking about states like michigan pennsylvania ohio indiana wisconsin um we could extend the definition but as i've said it's a fairly fluid kind of concept but the the areas that powered america's growth in the late 19th and early 20th century the places that where manufacturing clustered that are now which at, at that time were called the heartland or just the Midwest, sometimes arsenal of democracy. But this change and shift in the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s, where the places that boomed in the first half of the 20th century are now really suffering acute economic pain. Um, factories are leaving, jobs are leaving. But that's the Rust Belt's more an idea. Um, and as a consequence, as I've said, it becomes fairly man- malleable. Okay, so now that we've got a general idea of what what the term Rust Belt means, and obviously its its implications aren't exactly the most positive implications. It it doesn't, you know, it's of a glorious past, but an area in decline. So, I mean, general, how do people who live in Rust Belt areas feel about the label? You know, is it sort of viewed as a badge of honour that you come from the Rust Belt and you're, you know, sticking it out? Or, Or is it seen as an insult? You know, is this like sort of... The elites in America looking down on the heartlands. Like, how, how in your research have you got a sense of how people feel about being called, you know, Rust Belters or whatever they're called? Yeah, I think, I think the answer, as with most things, is it's a bit of both. Um, 
I think there's a certain resentment of um, initially and both currently of the kind of life cycle metaphors that get used alongside the Rust Belt. So this idea that it's somewhere that's declining, that's decaying, that's demising, etc. Um, but it's there is a fairly cohesive, particularly in the period that I work on, there's a fairly cohesive identity between places like Ohio, Pennsylvania and Michigan, a shared sense of... Uh, economic that things are not going well economically and you get these kind of nobody explicitly calls themselves the rust belt but you get these political organization um political organizations and coalitions that form whether they're northeast midwest coalition um heartland organization these kind of things with this shared identity but as a as a main there's this kind of rejection of this rust belt label as i've said this kind of idea that not relevant um, this demising society and the stereotypes that come along with the, the idea of something reaching old age and uh, demising. How much has... The one thing I often wonder about this is I find it quite interesting that the term Rust Belt sort of emerges as only about a decade or so if I'm right in thinking after, you know, the famous political strategist Kevin Phillips coins the term the Sun Belt for, for the, a region that runs from Virginia all the way to across the continent of the United States to Southern California and the region of the United States is seen as booming during this very same era that the Rust Belt is seen as, as, as in decline. And I'm sort of wondering how this, has the Rust Belt sort of been defined by its sort of opposite in the Sun Belt? And, and indeed, as part of the reason the Rust Belt's problems weren't tackled, as well as they could have been perhaps by, by the government or by private industry because, well, a lot of people from the Rust Belt just moved to the Sun Belt anyway. Yeah. Um, I think as far as, as a term goes, it, it explicitly comes from the Sun Belt, as you've said. Kevin Phillips in 1969 kind of coins this term for the developing areas of the, of the Southeast, um, and the Southwest. And so yeah, the Rust Belt and the kind of, acceptance of the label over the Rust Belt over the Rust Bowl, I think very much comes from the fact that the Rust Belt is seen as being in opposition for much of the 1970s and 1980s to the Sun Belt. So there are these big kind of Sun Belt, Rust Belt wars that get a fair amount of attention. Um, and it's usually over the equity of federal spending, basically, that the Rust, that the states or the industrial states of the Midwest that are now suffering are paying much more in taxes than they're getting in federal spending, and that it's the other way around for the Sun Belt. So you have these kind of, as I've said, these congressional coalitions that are very much lining up against each other in Congress and getting really obsessed over mathematical formulas um, and what that means for for how much money they receive. Um, and so this, there's also this resentment as well that gets bound up with this, that the federal government has spent so much developing the, modernizing the South in the early half of the 20th century, and that you get these Midwest politicians saying, well, now's our time, now we're America's number one economic problem, to kind of riff off FDR's famous quote about the South. 
How much of this, I'm going to add an additional question in here, how much of this is to do with, with technological change that's taking place? You know, the Sun Belt representing the old, sorry, the Rust Belt representing old heavy industry, and the Sun Belt now representing new technologies, you know, electronics, miniaturization, all that kind of thing. Is that a fair assessment to make? We see a kind of a split in where technology is emerging in the United States. I don't... I think so to a degree. Um, I think Silicon Valley, um, which so many of the high-tech enclaves of America, um, I think the historian Margaret O'Mara does quite a good job of this in her book, showing that so many of the high-tech areas in America are built through Cold War spending, etc., um, and that actually the agency that government, state governments have to develop these places in the 1970s and 1980s it's it's already gone. They've already decided that North Carolina, um, to a degree, the uh, the Michigan the corridor um, Route One to Eight corridor in Michigan, but Silicon Valley too are the established high tech centers in part because of government spending and as I said, decisions made during the 1950s and the 1960s. But I think that's another kind of resentment of the Rust Belt label is it stereotypes the whole area. Places like I know we've I think all of us have been to Ann Arbor. Um, Automation Alley, um, it makes its name in the 1980s as this high-tech corridor. Um, and things like cars, America still makes cars um, throughout this period. Detroit still makes cars. There are still automobile factories, uh, car factories in Detroit, and even places in the South. So I think it's, it's a bit of an unfair distinction to say that the South is high-tech industries and that the Midwest um, and Northeast. And that's some of what I try and do in my work is say, well, actually, there are innovations. There is economic development ideas. There are economic development ideas coming from the mid, the Midwest and Northeast. But to a degree, it's true. Um, so if we if we turn away from uh, from the kind of the, the division between Sun Belt and Rust Belt and actually look at the historical development of the of the Rust Belt in, in more detail, I was travelling through. Uh, Illinois and Wisconsin and Indiana and Ohio and in 2006 on the, on the Greyhound quite a lot and had to transit through Gary, Indiana and northern Indiana uh, quite a few times and was struck and as were the people I was travelling with about the you know, the decaying and abandoned steel mills because Gary I think was the home of, of US steel at one point, one of the centres of US steel making, the abandoned steel mills, the decaying chemical factories that you saw all the way into the city centre of Gary, Indiana, and Gary was a was quite run down at, at the time. So that struck me as something that that typified what I thought as an outsider, as an observer, what I imagined the Rust Belt to be like. And is there so? Is that typical? Or is there a typical Rust Belt story that illustrates the troubles that this this region faced, or or is Gary atypical? Yeah, I think I think there's no typical place. There are many iconic places. Would be the distinction I would make. Gary being iconic, as you said, Gary was the home of U.S. Steel. It's actually made by U.S. Steel. It's named after U.S. Steel's first CEO. Um, as a town, so ah, you've got these iconic places. From. I always wondered why someone called a town Gary. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, continue that. Gary I'm so surprised. Um, <laughs> so, so you've got these iconic places, whether it's South Bend, Indiana, um, home of Notre Dame, um, 
now is what we think of it, but Gary, Youngstown, Ohio, um, which used to be the second highest, the sec- America's second steel city, um, Detroit, obviously Flint, we could go on, Homestead, et cetera, et cetera. And so these towns that are one industry towns in the main, sometimes like Gary, they're one company towns, um, Flint being a General Motors um, town. So they're iconic places, but the truth is their stories are all different because usually they're individual plant closures and what they've gone on to do subsequently very much varies. And it also depends on how you define a rust belt place. But so, for example, a place like Pittsburgh has very much reinvented itself in inverted commas as a meds and ed city, as a city that uh, does pharmaceutical industry, works in pharmaceuticals and a city that leverages its university for economic development purposes. And that's found some kind of future for itself. But if you go outside of Pittsburgh to the towns like Homestead, McKeesport, that very much or Gary that very much were one industry towns that were small towns, then actually they look quite a lot like Gary. But as I said, there's no no one story because as p- part of the plant closing decisions are all made at different times and what's happened since all varies from place to place. So, Dan, I was just wondering, in terms of you saying there's not a typical story, but is there a, is there a similar context as to why all this has happened? Is, is this... You know, the, the 1970s sort of the era of you're, you're getting more globalization and far more economic competition for abroad. You know, sort of America's great advantage after World War Two when it, you know, surged ahead in manufacturing because it was one of the few places in the globe that, you know, emerged from World War Two without, you know, its, its country in ruins. And, you know, if anything, having really developed its manufacturing during World War Two, which helped win the war. And by the 1970s, you've got Japan catching up and you've got a host of other countries now in Europe, Germany really catching up. Is that a common thread as to why the Rust Belt as a whole takes a whacking um, from the 1970s onwards? Yes, I think, um, as you've said, you have this long post-war period where America's economic industrial Superiority is pretty much effortless because Japan and West Germany, the kind of industrial rivals, are rebuilding, starting from scratch. Consumer demand is sky high. So it's, it's easy to do well and there's excess demand for steel. There's the biggest threat is, uh, is excess demand. The biggest threat that steel produces fear in the 1950s and for much of the 1960s is that they actually won't be able to make enough steel to sell. And by the 1970s, by the 1980s, that's, that's really changed. Um, and there is oversupply within global markets and America's steel producing facilities, quite frankly, are out of date. Um, and they can't produce steel as productively. Now for the car industry, it's a bit more complicated because obviously car sales very much fluctuate based upon if you're building cars that consumers want. Uh, steel is, a product that is fungible it's it's always the same so you're not building better or worse quality steel japanese steel can be is just is acknowledged as just as good a quality so the car industry is a bit more complicated but it's as i said most of it is to do with that effortless superiority of when uh this 19 this post-war period when consumer demand is sky high and when america has has the market to itself and there's a lot of 
there's a lot of short-term planning at that stage. There's a lot of not investing for the future and not thinking um, corporate executives happy with the bumper profits and not thinking what industries are going to look like in 20 years' time if foreign countries and foreign governments continue to expand their industrial capacity. And just actually to follow up that as well, that a follow-up to Mark's follow-up. I mean, you mentioned the automobile industry in America there, but you know, in the 1970s we have... You know, the multiple and ongoing oil crises. Uh, you have things like, uh, is it in the 1970s that California starts to bring in its smog restrictions, uh, and, you know, and other kind of things that, that affect the automobiles that are being produced in places like, like Detroit. But as far as I understand it, the American car industry is quite slow to react, uh, to these trends and react to trends that are coming from Europe and Japan in terms of automobile manufacturing. Is that, Fair to say, and is that something that plays a part in the kind of the, the decline of that that side of American manufacturing? Yes, the difference the difference is that the car industry, to a degree, recovers. Um, but you're absolutely right, Malcolm, that during the both energy crises of the 1970s, American producers are on the back foot because they've spent decades making money building large fuel inefficient cars. Um, Large cars make profits. Small cars do not make profits. So it's it's a logical business decision for General Motors, Chrysler, and uh, Ford to say, well, Volkswagen um, and Nissan, etc., can build the small cars that are ten percent of the market and make far smaller margins, and we'll just build the cars that consumers want when uh, fuel prices are inexpensive. So there are decisions made during the 1970s leave Detroit um, and America's automobile producers very much on the back foot for the early 1980s. And I think in about 1980, when Chrysler is bailed out by the federal government, it's losing about $8 million a day. There's re- it's really not clear that Chrysler is going to be able to survive because of this sudden shift in what American consumers want to buy. They're both delaying car purchases because interest rates are sky high and most people buy cars on finance. Most people take out loans, but they're also choosing to buy the cars that Volkswagen, um, Nissan, Honda, etc. are producing, which are much more fuel efficient. Yep. And before we move on to something else, I always find it funny that kind of the small American cars of that era end up almost being kind of the butt of a joke. They're like, you know, I remember in the film Wayne's World, you know, the, it's Wayne's car is uh, is an AMC Pacer, which was one of the small cars that they introduced in the mid nineteen seventies to try and get you know be more economical and can compete with these small Japanese cars. And it ends up being a laugh. It's funny because they drive around in this this ridiculous little car from the nineteen seventies, and and they become the butt of a joke as opposed to the the Buick Rivieras and the Mustangs and all of these kind of things, which are the big cars that everyone everyone wanted to buy. So moving away slightly from that kind of thinking about manufacturing and automobiles and everything, we've talked a lot about the Rust Belt, you know, speaking about Gary and Detroit and places like that, being focused on the city, whether it's a small city like Gary or a large city like Detroit. Were rural and, and small town areas of America also affected by this this Rust Belt phenomenon? Or was it purely something that was affecting large and small cities broadly defined to a degree small town america is affected um obviously there are automobile producers rubber producers 
still produces the kind of three major industries that we're talking about um, have suppliers, and a lot of those suppliers aren't necessarily based in the big towns that we've been towns and cities that we've been talking about. But actually, it is a fairly urban or suburban phenomenon that we're that we are talking about. The small town places tend to be more agricultural, and of course, the agriculture is an industry. Um, John Deere makes uh, makes tractors, etc. And there is a farm crisis in the 1980s. Um, and farmers and the agriculture industry is feeling the same kind of pain. It's just less dramatic because it's more dispersed, and it's also not such a large section of the economy. Um, you don't have the kind of massive plant closures which make for good pictures on the front page of newspapers or make for good shots to the closing scenes of documentary films, <laughs> etc. Yeah, definitely. And I mean... Moving on as well to think about the the politics of of the Rust Belt and how how the decline of the era, era uh, sorry the decline of the the region affected its politics because I I feel like well you know I'm mostly interested in American political history and I feel like the Rust Belt voter or the white working class former Democrat who becomes a Republican under Ronald Reagan is just like one of the biggest tropes you hear over and over again and I feel like it's been revived in recent times with the sort of Obama-Trump voter that we'll maybe discuss a wee bit later. So how did the decline um, in Rust Belt Industries affect the politics of the era? You know, was was the economic decline the foundation for the emergence of what were called Reagan Democrats or is that simplifying a more interesting story? I think that simplifies or makes linear an idea which, as we're probably inclined to agree as historians, is much more complicated and multi-directional than that. Yes, Reagan does benefit in part from his predecessors, predecessors' abysmal economic record. Whether or not that's Carter's fault is a is another matter. But so Reagan does benefit, and undoubtedly a lot of people in the areas that we have been talking about do vote for Reagan in 1980. But what some of what I do and point out in my work is actually, I don't know why this surprises anyone, but voters are fickle. Um, that by 1982, the economy, uh, the American economy is, is in the toilet. Um, and uh, opposition to Reagan is high in the in in the Rust Belt, I think the vignette that that we opened with uh, gives a good job of showing that. And if you look at the gubernatorial, the gubernatorial races in 1982, the candidates that are winning, the candidates that win uh, the Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan governors' races are very anti-Reagan. They're very much pledging big government solutions to the problem. So. Reagan Democrats to a degree in in the election of 1980, but as as I said, I think it's a much more complex picture than that, and it very much does depend on the perceived state of the economy and America's economic position at the time of an election. Now, I'm going to bring this up, and I'm glad we're on a podcast so no one can see Mark's face when I mention this. I feel we should turn for a moment to Jimmy Carter. I thought that's the reaction I would get. So, and specifically thinking about Carter's famous and not at all called this at the time because he doesn't use the, the, his malaise speech, 
where he talks about the need for efficiency and economy and of America to, you know, turn away from the, the rampant consumerism, uh, that, that has plagued American society and is, you know, causing kind of issues for, for the United States and politics, society, culture, all that kind of thing. How does that play? In the Rust Belt, how does Carter's approach towards towards energy and manufacturing and and those kind of things? How does that play out in these areas that are already being subject to, you know, the tides of both you know, economic decisions being made by large American corporations and also the tides of globalization, which has really been kind of you know invigorated since the the late sixties into the early nineteen seventies. Well. It's a very, it's a very varied reaction as you can, I think for, for most voters in the area that we're talking about, for most Americans, actually what is significant is not the Malaise speech, but at, but at the same time, Carter and his new, uh, the new chair of the tre- treasury, William Miller, are trying desperately to rescue Chrysler. So in the background, um, this is what is happening. And I think this is what most, um, Chrysler is the largest employer, um, larger employer of black people in the USA in 1979, 1980. So that's a huge concern for a lot of voters. And so I think more than the Malay speech, it's what's the actual, more than the rhetoric, it's, it's the actions that are, that are being scrutinized, um, and being affected. And I'm, I think that probably plays very well for Carter in Michigan, although he down very much, his administration very much downplays the help he's giving to the auto industry. He's giving a lot of help to the auto industry um, in 1980. He's not giving much to the steel industry. Um, I would say one thing, again, this speaks to the fact that we can't stereotype and we can't come up with one picture. There's a huge difference in reaction between what Car- both Carter and Reagan do to try and help the steel industry and what they do to try and help the automobile industry. I'd argue that uh, both presidents see steel as something in America's past, whereas both presidents want to save the American automobile industry. Neither president wants to be the man who bankrupted the American automobile industry. Yeah, and uh, sorry, one other tiny, tiny point I wanted to make that actually goes back a tiny bit was that in, the, in your introduction you mentioned you were interested, you know, in, in New York as well as as being, and I've never thought of New York as being part of the, of the Rust Belt. But now that you're talking about Carter, remember the famous headline of Gerald Ford saying to, you know, New York, you know, drop dead New York or something. I think it was the, the headline of it. Ford, Ford to city, drop dead. Yeah. So, I mean, I think is the headline. Yeah. I mean, is, is that, is, is New York city part of the Rust Belt as well? Difficult to say. I think it fits in 1975 when it's um in the doldrums and it's very much lost a huge number of new york does manufacture things i think that's always worth remembering it has historically made a lot of clothes for example um and yeah perhaps it fits there but it's something that doesn't endure the same pain throughout the 1980s i mean the people that suffer from the retrenchments made by the Koch administration um, and previous the previous mayors of New York suffer, but it doesn't have the same prolonged economic pain. But the same thing could be said of Boston. It should be said, Boston's, if we were talking of the early 1970s, Boston's as bad as anywhere. It's as bad as Detroit. Boston does manage to reinvent itself, in part because it has two huge sources of economic development in MIT and Harvard. 
Um, but yet yeah, Boston, we could be talking about Boston if we extended our definition. But I think for the purposes of saying that the Rust Belt is the area that suffered between the late 1970s and the, the early 1980s, New York doesn't quite fit that definition, which allows us to exclude places like Boston, New York, um, the places, and coal. If we were talking about coal, for example, the coal industry's pain is the early 1940s and 50s. So the Rust Belt's a phenomenon not just confined or deindustrialization isn't just confined to the 1970s and 1980s. Okay, so we've had, we've talked about the pain, we've talked about malaise, we've talked about Jimmy Carter. Um, but here we come into the 1980s, riding in on his horse to the rescue is, is, is Hollywood's own Ronald Reagan. Um, and by 1984, he has everyone basking in the dawn of morning in America, um, as, as the famous camp- campaign ad would say. To what extent do Rust Belt Americans get to bask in that glow? Um, I mean, to what extent do they feature in the sort of economic growth that's going to characterise the American economy all the way from the mid-1980s through to the Great Recession in the, in the late noughties? I think they do. Um, particularly, again, if we look at automobiles, the American automobile industry is resurgent. And actually, Ronald Reagan makes a big speech in Wisconsin where he very much talks about mourning in America, but lays it on the automobile industry. So he goes to this Ford factory and he says, the sun is shining on the American automobile industry again. Why? It's because of deregulation and because of tax cuts. Um claiming credit and credit for his the policies that he wants to be identified. Of course, the reality is actually it's taken the resurgence of the automobile industry is built on much more interventionist policies than Reagan will publicly admit. Um, so to a degree, this kind of the long, what gets called by economists, the great moderation that you mentioned of the, the 1990s and early 2000s does come to some Rust Belt areas, but then not to others, the, the kind of Gary, Youngstown, etc. These, these jobs and these steel mills are closed for good. Um, and the new jobs in Reagan's economy, if we want to call it that, do not pay as well. Um, at least for, uh, for people that are, that don't have levels of education, um, comparable. The high tech economy requires, uh, a level of education or service jobs. Um, don't pay as well. So you get this dynamic that in the 1950s and the 1960s, if you lived in Pittsburgh or Greater Pittsburgh, you could get a middle class paying job, but whilst be doing a blue collar, a blue collar, blue collar job. And that just doesn't exist in the post 90 or post industrial economy, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Um, so morning in America is, is uneven for the area that we're talking about. As I've said, Ann Arbor area, that high tech corridor of Michigan. Sure. Absolutely. Um, it does very well during this period, but others not so. It's, there's always some gloom, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's impossible to make this into a fully happy ending. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, I mean, but are there any overall positives to emerge from the, you know, the experience of the Rust Belt? You've talked about places like Ann Arbor and Michigan benefiting from, you know, high tech industries, from having a massive university, from having a ma- massive healthcare system centered there. And, and that benefits obviously not just the city, but a, a wider region uh, in, in Michigan. Are there any 
substantial positives to emerge from the Rust Belt experience, or is it all just, as you said, there a story of kind of like doom, gloom, decline, uh, lower paying jobs, fewer prospects? I think there are two stories. There is the there is the miserable story, but actually there's kind of the moment when the Rust Belt f- occurs, the moment where it feels it's acute pain, it very much does force America's industrial corporations to reckon with the fact that they've become uncompetitive and to make changes that they just haven't made and make investments that they just haven't made during years when their profits were sky high and effortless. So if we want to look from a pure kind of business-minded point of view and focus focus on corporations, then sure, US Steel manages to reinvent itself, Chrysler manages to to reinvent itself. None of these play, none of these corporations died and they're still making large profits and still employing a huge number of people, but they're employing far less people and they're employing people on lower wages um, and fewer benefits. So it's a very, it's a very mixed period, but it's a story of change and adaptation. Um, and sometimes, sometimes that's successful adaptation and sometimes that's unsuccessful well, that, that, adaptation. That was, that was very apt use of the word change now because I want to bring us uh, all the way forward into sort of the recent past and, and specifically sort of the the Obama and then and then Trump campaigns there. Now it's funny that Malcolm mentioned Gary Indiana earlier because one of my my memories of waking up to watch the BBC in the morning that before uh, of uh, Obama's first election and they were broadcasting live from Gary Indiana in what looked like the most desolate part of town um so that you know saying can Obama revive Gary Indiana and all these other places. And and a sort of trend emerged, I think, across the Rust Belt that you have in 2008 and 2012. Rust Belt voters in general, the states along the Rust Belt, you know, the, the ones that are often tightly contested, Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and that, give their votes to Barack Obama. And indeed, to the point where they start talking about this democratic blue wall uh, and that, that, that can hope that will keep getting their presidents elected. And then, as we all know, that wall comes crumbling down very fast in 2016 when uh, the, the Rust Belt region, by and large, votes for, for Donald Trump. Why do you think the Rust Belt has emerged as the location of the infamous sort of Obama-Trump voter who we have all read about ad nauseum um, in the numerous stories uh, that the media has has been has sent themselves out there to, to chat to these people and to write? Yeah, I think in part it's because it's an easy narrative. Um, it's a it's a nice to- story in some ways for, as you've said, this ad nauseum reading. The Washington Post did a hugely long article recently on Midwestern voters and going to interview them after uh, after a year of Trump and seeing opinions. So I think it's easy to see the the victims being the white working class. Of course, the reality is actually when we're talking about blue collar workers there's a large proportion of black people that are blue-collar workers, and in a way, actually, they suffer... Black people suffer the most because they're least likely to own their own home um, and to have the kind of assets which they can leverage for more education or to move on. Um, So I think it's an easy narrative, and I do think you can make too much of this phenomenon. Uh, Trump only won Michigan by less than 20,000 votes, I think, if 
20,000 votes different and we'd be having it, we wouldn't be having this conversation. The same goes for, it's a bit better in Ohio. I think it's half a million votes Trump wins Ohio by, but that's a traditional battleground state and it's less than 50,000 in Pennsylvania. So it's not exactly a revolt. Um, the results are not are far from unanimous, but I think there's something there. Um, I think perhaps to a degree the Midwestern voters have a strong identity of where they're from and a strong identity of past prosperity and a sense that their region and their state was great at some stage to riff on the 2016 slogan. So the make America great again, um, America for them or their region of the country, they have a sense that it was great in the 1950s and the 1960s. Again, I'm talking white working class voters here, clearly for black working class voters, the 1950s and 1960s aren't potentially great um, for lots of different reasons. So we can make too much, but I think the thing is both candidates, both Obama and Trump, promised change from the status quo. Um, again, voters being fickle perhaps we like to try and map people onto an ideological spectrum but actually most people don't make sense in their political views um and they've two candidates that have promised change and i think in trump whilst i don't want to go too much into election analysis trump had a clear person had clear parties to blame he blamed the washington swamp and he blamed china um trump is very much a politician of the 1980s in lots of ways if you've Listen to a Trump speech. If you replace China with Japan, um, still talking about unfair trade, still talking about victimization, etc. He has clear parties that he blames for what he sees as these ill-defined problems that he sees with the economy and, um, and politics. And I think that's a, that's a narrative that has a degree of comfort that somebody isn't just telling a long, complicated story. Um, they've got a clear idea of what they think needs to change. I mean, how much is this kind of political use of a kind of a manufacturing past, sort of like typified by the Rust Belt, or, or kind of an extractive past, typified by things like the coal fields, the coal country of West Virginia, and the use of polit- you know, politicians' use of this as, as a source of appeal and a source of votes during the electoral, electoral process. Is there any grounding in reality to this idea of the glorious manufacturing past and everything was wonderful and we all had jobs and we were the, you know, we produced so much stuff. Is there any reality to that? Or is it just rose tinted nostalgia about what the manufacturing past was like? Yeah, I mean. Because it was bloody awful for a lot of people. It was. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's in writing about any of these things that's what you try and avoid is the romanticization of this industrial past it is both mind-numbingly boring and back-breakingly difficult working in an automobile factory and actually there's a study by a sociologist ruth bilkman that highlights the fact that a lot of the uh, automobile workers that she interviews etc are quite pleased that they don't have their jobs and please that they get to make make a different decision rather than just go into the automobile factory. And the same goes for steel. Working in a steel ma- mill, the conditions are quite horrible. I, you read these sociological accounts and the heat, the the injuries, all of these kind of things. But the trade off is 
as I've said in the past, you earn a very good wage um, because of union unionized contract negotiations and the sky-high profits of the 1950s, meaning that corporations aren't putting up that much of a fight with the unions um, over wage and benefits, that your work might not be particularly exciting and might be long hours and difficult, but you do have a very good wage and you get situations where it, Youngstown, Ohio has the high, highest home ownership rate in America. Um, that's why people go to Detroit, etc. during the 1930s, 1940s and 1950s. The Great Migration is powered in part by this belief that uh, this southern migration upwards, um, that the jobs and the well-paid jobs are in Michigan. It's not go west, uh, young man. It's go to Michigan, go to... Uh, go to the automobile factory. So it's, it comes with qualifications, but this is what, there is affluence there, prosperity and security at least for a few decades. And to, to conclude this kind of exploration of the idea of the Rust Belt, do you think that the term Rust Belt is going to outgrow its use in the future? Or is the area, this kind of like slightly amorphous, ill-defined area that we think of as the Rust Belt, is it likely to continue to be hampered by this like stigma of economic and, and manufacturing decline for a while yet? I think, I don't think it's going to shed its reputation, at least not instantly. Nowhere dies. Um, we still tore ancient Rome. Um, even though that's a civilization that has died, it's still got some economic use. But its resurgence and recapturing the prosperity of the 1950s and 1960s possible? I'm, as, you've, as with most things, fairly cynical. Um, I like to point out that Detroit in 1950 peaks population at 1.6 million. Um, the population in 2016, I think, is slightly less than 700,000. So you've got a city that was built, it was actually built for more than 1.6 million people. They expected it to go, to go on expanding. The Michigan Railroad building that's become iconic with Detroit is actually built on the outskirts based on that premise. Um, so Detroit's never gonna double in population, um, is my own view on this. There is a future for both places. They're not gonna die. If we zoom forward two, three hundred years, Will we think about these things? Will the pollution, because there are a lot of polluted areas, um, remain? I don't know. Um, but I do know one, to end on, or semi-end on a note of optimism, I know that we don't go to places in the UK that were built during the, the wall boom and think of those as deindustrialized places. If you go to lots of the medieval towns, Norwich, to mention my hometown, <laughs> Thought I'd get a shout out there. <laughs> we don't think of it as this deindustrialized area, but actually it spent quite a long time suffering in the wake of the industrial revolution, etc. So if we go to the pre-past and look at, or the pre-industrial age and look at the places that we could have said deindustrialized, if that even works, but we'll run with it, um, then there's some, some hope that something new will come, but it's a, it's a story of change. It's, that's not going to recapture is my own view, but perhaps I'll be wrong. I'd love to be wrong. Um, <laughs> well, from the Rust Belt to Norwich, you've uh, you've given us quite the journey, Dan. Thank you very much for that. Yes. Um, 
So we are going to be back next month when we're going to be doing a special podcast um, around the midterm elections. Um, and but until then, thank you very much, Dan. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Malcolm. And uh, and thank you very much, listeners. And we'll see you next month. Bye bye. Goodbye. Fog was lifting, and I seen.